Crystal Deal With It focuses on bridging the gap between where you're at now and where you'd like to be. We'll explore wisdom and techniques from a wide variety of domains and industries and apply them to your unique challenges. I love developing frameworks, processes, and storytelling metaphors that enable personal and business growth. Through actionable next steps, we'll build momentum and confidence. My goal is to help you clear roadblocks, do more with what you have, and realize the potential of yourself and your team. So throw your challenges my way and Chris will deal with it. Late in 2022, I read Douglas Rushkoff's 2010 book, Program or Be Programmed, 10 Commands for a Digital Age. Despite its publication date, Rushkoff presents evidence and arguments targeted to the emerging trends of the time. As those trends have been realized, his arguments have become even more vital. On today's episode, I'll review my book notes, highlighting my key takeaways and actions that will help me implement his 10 commands into living a better life. This was the most impactful book I read in 2022, and I haven't stopped thinking about it since. I really can't recommend this book enough, and it has inspired the first of these book notes episodes. It's part of my ongoing effort to get more useful information and actually apply things that I read in my books. And while I'm providing my personal highlights, this is one of those books where the summary isn't enough. It's a concise, accessible book, and Rushkoff's writing style and depth of understanding are critical to crystallizing his arguments and commands. It's my hope that listening to this episode will inspire you to pick up this deeply influential work and explore it for yourself. Like all episodes of Crystal Deal With It, I share free, downloadable PDFs of my show notes on my website. This episode's PDF will contain all the notes that I'm about to discuss, with links to check out this gem of a book for yourself, and links for further reading. So Programmer Be Programmed, 10 Commands for a Digital Age by Douglas Rushkoff. I'll start with an overview of the book. So Rushkoff lays out the book as a series of essays around 10 commandments. Each commandment is a conversation about a tendency or bias of digital media, how we balance that bias against the needs of real people living and working in both physical and virtual spaces. His aim is not to turn us into Luddites, but to help us live a better path alongside our digital technology. He argues that we've embraced these technologies and literacies too quickly without learning how they actually work or work upon us. And there is an existential risk for us, our own obsolescence, we're mesmerized by the devices themselves rather than the human stars that are operating within their biases. It's Rushkoff's aim to provide a kind of moral code, marking the changes and trends that were obvious only a few years after the first iPhone was released back in 2007. This book is a wonderful guide to developing a new ethical, behavioral, and business template. My book notes are going to be structured in a similar manner to the book. I'm going to present the main themes and arguments of each command, my initial thoughts and reactions to it, and then some of my concrete actions and takeaways after grappling with the arguments for nearly two months now. I'm going to summarize Rushkoff's 10 commands for a digital age. 1. Time. Do not be always on. 2. Place. Live in person. 3. Choice. You may always choose none of the above. 4. Complexity. You are never completely right. 5. Scale. One size does not fit all. 6. Identity. Be yourself. 7. Social. Do not sell your friends. 8. Fact. Tell the truth. 9. Openness. Share. Don't steal. And 10. Purpose. Program or be programmed. Time. Do not always be on. 
So gaining control over programs has allowed us to deconstruct narratives of shows or even commercials. It's a desire to break time, and it started before computers. And Rushkoff uses a great example of televisions and remote controls to illustrate this point. With internet connections becoming faster, fatter, and freer, he envisioned us adopting an always-on approach to media. And this totally proves out over the past decade plus. Our connections allow us to keep our applications on, updating and ready at every moment. It's resulted in this constant barrage of dings and vibrations anytime anyone or anything wants to message, email, tweet, update, notify, or alert us. Our devices have become an extension of our nervous systems, which are now attached to the entire online universe all the time. Instead of becoming empowered and aware, we become frazzled and exhausted. Many of us feel obligated to impulsively reply immediately, with no time for careful consideration. And it's also forced us to decrease the length and complexity of those communications. Digital media doesn't care about our physical time or mental health. It's biased against time. What works for companies programming these devices and digital technologies doesn't necessarily work for us as humans. Outsourcing our memory to machines expands the amount of data that we can access at the cost of our brain's own ability to remember stuff or even calling upon certain skills. I mean, machines may do tasks like mapping or finding someone a lot easier and do it better. I often find myself instinctively using calculators for basic math, even though I know I can do it in my own head, because I've lost both the confidence in that ability and I have this desire to calculate the result as fast as possible. A great quote from this chapter, our computers live in the ticks of the clock. We live in the big spaces between those ticks when the time actually passes. By becoming always on, we surrender time to a technology that knows and needs no such thing. So thoughts from this chapter. I've been rebelling against this for a while already. You know, I eliminate most notifications from my phone all the way through to those little badges with the number of how many unread things. Uh, I also utilize airplane mode. Uh, when I have me time or I'm asleep, very few people can get a hold of me. And I, I do suffer, like many people, from that phantom vibrate in my pocket. It's crazy how regular that's become for us. The concept of living between the ticks in that immediate present moment, it really resonated with me. I mean, in part because there's a big element of that in Buddhist philosophy. And it also plays on some of my own annoyances of people that have uh, cell phones out on the table during conversations or not paying attention in meetings. Turning this into action for me... Uh, one, I want to have more diligence in leaving phones totally out of the bedroom or in certain situations. And two, to divorce myself of the notion that I must react to digital messages, ASAP. Email is a big culprit there. The second command, place, live in person. So digital media is biased away from our locality and towards dislocation. Rushkoff uses the example of TV being better at broadcasting a sport from the other side of the world than broadcasting a conversation with someone sharing your bed. Technology in the 20th century mostly promoted one-way broadcasting, but now that it's become interactive, these digital pings become very compelling for those of us already feeling disconnected by mass marketing and media. And Rushkoff makes a critical point. Digital slideshows can be easily delivered from the comforts of home through the internet. There's no need to fly a human body 2,000 miles for that. But the reason to spend those resources to bring a body is for the full-spectrum communication that occurs between human beings in real spaces. The digital slideshow is a distraction. It distances people by mediating their interaction with electronic data. A uh, quote here, 
After days or weeks connecting with people through video chats, the sensation of someone's eyes actually looking into our own in real life can be overwhelming and disorienting. So thoughts here. The last point becomes even more revelatory considering we're coming out of COVID lockdowns. I think this is part of the reason so many people are having problems coming back into office and interpersonal settings. We're so overwhelmed by in-person stuff now than we were even a few years ago. And in my day job as a sales role, I have been shying away from static PowerPoints for a while now and more towards those dynamic interpersonal conversations. Turning this into action, I want to keep a focus on not mediating live person-to-person conversations with digital abstractions like PowerPoint slides. I want to create more opportunities to be face-to-face and have conversations with friends. I'll get a return on the extra effort to be in real life. Next command, choice. You may always choose none of the above. Digital recording seems so convincingly real. Rushkoff brings in some research into analog versus digital recordings. Early tests of analog versus digital recordings revealed that music played back on a CD had far less positive impact on depressed patients than played on a record. Other tests show digitally recorded sound moves the air in a room significantly differently than analog recordings played through the same speakers. Presumably, this means that bodies in that room would experience that difference even if we can't immediately name or put a metric to the exact difference. Digital audio engineers can increase sampling rates, measure more elements of a sound, tune their digital files to a finer point. If the sampling rate and frequency range are beyond the capability of a human ear, it's presumed the problem is solved. But the problem is not with the quality of the digital recording, it's that it's a fundamentally different phenomenon from the analog one. Analog happens the same way the hands of a clock move slowly around the dial, passing over the digits in one smooth motion. The digital recording is more like a digital clock making absolute and discrete choices about when those seconds are changing from one to the next. The digital realm is biased towards choice. Everything must be expressed in terms of a discrete yes or no or symbolic languages. This in turn often forces choices on humans operating digitally. Now, database architectures require that programmers pick the key categories and the granularity for their employer's purpose. There's a lot of thoughts from this one. This was a major mindset shifter for me. It really highlighted the innate differences between digital versus analog. And there is a growing trend towards more analog consumption. And there's still, you see vinyl everywhere now, right? I think this might even explain why as I get older, I'm falling more in love with music like bluegrass and jazz rather than electronic music. And it's not that I mind the latter, but the former resonates deeper with my soul. But turning this into action, I want to internalize the knowledge that when I work on data analytics tools, my choices can have an outsized impact and may be driven by unrealized biases. I have to remember that they exist. I also want to keep a close eye on digital versus analog experiences being more open to opportunities to compare and contrast the two. The next command, complexity. You are never completely right. We forget that our digital tools are modeling reality, not substituting for it. We have to acknowledge that digital tools are biased towards a reduction of that complexity. Therefore, we have to treat its simulations as models, not completely accurate depictions of our world. Facts that are devoid of context are nearly impossible to apply sensibly. Even worse, facts like this become the basis for falsely constructed arguments of social or political discourse. And to quote Rushkoff here, 
Young people, in particular, are developing the ability to get the gist of an entire area of study with just a moment of interaction with it. So digital simulations are numerical models. Many choices about them must be made in advance. Models are necessarily reductive and limited by design. Now they're definitely useful, but it is important to qualify them. Digital reduction yields maps. These maps are great for charting a course, but they're not capable of providing the journey. No matter how detailed or interactive the map gets, it cannot replace the territory. Like I said, it's hard to believe this book was written in 2010, right? It's like Rushkoff predicted fake news and the disturbing trends of social media algorithms. I mean, I've heard the map is not the territory before, but putting it in the context of digital models was poignant for me. But turning that into action, when I am working with those digital models, I have to maintain better awareness of their limitations and not substitute them for a full reality. And when I am giving a model, I want to note those limitations when discussing them with others in a way to kind of spread awareness of their inability to fully capture reality or predict what's going to happen. The next command, scale. One size does not fit all. Everything occurring on the internet is at the same abstracted and universal level. Survival in a purely digital realm, businesses in particular, means being able to scale. And winning means being able to move up one level of abstraction beyond everyone else. Side note here, I put a link to further reading with one of Rushkoff's newer books, Survival of the Richest, which really talks about this level of abstraction in business in much more depth. Back to this book, businesses are already biased towards abstraction. Combining this with the internet's emphasis on success through scale yielded a digital economy with almost no basis in actual commerce, the laws of supply and demand, or the creation of value. It's not capitalism in the traditional sense, but an abstracted hyper-capitalism utterly divorced from getting anything done. And the closer to the creation of value you get under this scheme, the further you are from the money. And our mediating technologies do connect us, but on increasingly abstracted levels. So thoughts here, I mean, we are seeing a sort of pushback on these massively scaled global digital economy companies like uh, Meta or Facebook. Twitter, Apple, Google, etc. And we hear so much about big data, algorithms, and digital footprints that we have lost sight of the importance of creating value. You know, few people have a full understanding of how hard it is to get your signal through the noise. Lots of gatekeepers still exist, but many of those are now algorithms or abstractions, not actual people. Turning this into action, continue to push for solutions more grounded in reality than the digital realm. For example, support local indie bookstores instead of buying your books on Amazon. I want to put more energy into boots-on-the-ground marketing instead of digital. Making truer connections may be slower and harder to scale, but it is more human and forges deeper connections. The command of identity, be yourself. The anonymous status of people in an online group engenders crowd behavior. It goes further than protecting themselves from retribution. Anonymous people have nothing to fear as individuals. They get used to taking actions from a distance and in secret. And the result of this is that they exacerbate digital technology's most dehumanizing tendencies. They behave angrily, destructively, and automatically. They go from being people to being a mob. Now, we should all keep our bank accounts and personal information private, but our posts, our participation, and socializing should be coming from ourselves. To quote him directly, the less we take responsibility for what we say and do online, the more likely we are to behave in ways that reflect our worst natures or even the worst natures of others. 
because digital technology is biased towards depersonalization, we have to make an effort not to operate anonymously unless absolutely necessary. We must be ourselves. The more time it takes to acquire a reputation in an online environment, the more it'll matter even when it's entirely out of body. My thoughts here is that I couldn't agree more with the mob tendencies online anonymity causes. Rushkoff identified a trend line that we've seen result in cancel culture, fake news, the January 6th insurrection, and countless digital takedown attacks. You know, I believe in the rule that you shouldn't say online what you're not willing to say to the person's face. It's possible to disagree with someone and have a discourse online with civility and grace. Turning this into action, I'm going to continue to own what I say and do online, just as I would in the real world. I'm not going to pay any attention to anonymous comments, reviews, etc. from online interactions with the media I create. The command to be social, do not sell your friends. Our digital networks are biased towards social contact. Any effort to redefine or hijack those connections for profit end up compromising the integrity of the network itself. It compromises the real promise of contact. He does also refer to networks devised to exploit kids' social lives. It says that kids aren't nearly as scandalized by us as those of us who still hold on to the ideal of genuine, agenda-free connections between people. If online social contact becomes something necessarily commingled with commercial exploitation, then this will become a new normative human behavior as well. So I appreciate Rushkoff identifying that there are some necessities to living part of our lives online, and it's not all necessarily negative. Kids have been growing up surrounded by this technology now. But we do need to have an awareness of how we can be manipulated by these social systems, since it's far easier to do this at scale online than it would be in a tightly knit community. For me, I want to turn this to action by focusing on the growth of my writing, the podcasts, on honest and real relationships. I want to cater to individuals and their needs. That's slower and difficult to scale, but it's more genuine and can have a stronger impact on the communities that I serve. And I want to keep an eye on my kids' usage of technology, especially those with social and data gathering components. I want to be able to teach them enough about the system design and programming behind them so they understand what's going on under the hood. The command of fact. Tell the truth. I'm quoting Rushkoff here, we spread the ideas we think are true because this will increase our value to others. When media remained a top-down proposition, there was little fact-based peer-to-peer communication to challenge any of it. People worked hard on assembly lines or in cubicles, no longer experiencing themselves in their multiple social roles simultaneously. They were workers on the job trying to just earn a paycheck and then consumers at home relaxing to the mythological drone of mass media. And there's a key concept here that media has evolved from being read-only into read-write. On the net, mythologies tend to fall apart and facts rise to the surface. And if a company wants to promote conversation about itself, all it really needs to do is something, anything significant. There are companies who get on the front page of the newspaper simply for releasing an upgrade to a phone. And this is less about their ability to communicate than the power and importance of their actions on so many people. Marketers need to learn that the easiest way to sell stuff in the digital age is to make good stuff. And in that online marketplace, successful communicators are the ones who can quickly evaluate what they're hearing and learn to pass on only the stuff that matters. They're creating more signal and less noise. They're becoming the most valued authorities in a digital media. They're those who actually discover and innovate. They're the people who do and find things worthy of everyone else's attention. 
They're the ones who provide excuses to send messages to each other, but also ways for us to create more value for each other. And when the media space is biased towards nonfiction, you win by telling the truth. But that means having a truth to tell. So this read-only to read-write is a paradigm-shifting thing for me. Uh, Rushkoff's view of how we got to this stage and how it was impacted by digital technology was revelatory as well. As we engage more with content, read-write, we're also exposed to far more choice than in previous generations. It is possible to drown in all that noise and all those options. I feel that I check a lot of the boxes for being a successful communicator in online marketplaces. I pass on lots of things that matter. But maybe my problem is that I'm casting too wide a net in terms of interests or domains. So turning this into action, I want to put more focus into discerning better signals in the noise. I want to be choosier with the content I interact with and promote. I also want to give myself more time to synthesize so I can better realize the truths that I want to tell. Openness. Share, don't steal. We live in an age where thinking itself is collective. It's no longer a personal activity. We are immersed in media and swimming in the ideas of other people all the time. And value is still being extracted from our work, but it's being taken from a different place in the production cycle and not being passed down to the creators themselves. Those who create for a living are told that free labor will garner us more exposure and that exposure is necessary to get paid for something else that we do, like talks or television. Of course, the people hiring us to do those appearances believe that they should get us for free as well, because our live performances will help publicize our books and movies. We characterize this as an open digital society, but we become less open to one another than we are to exploitation. Exploitation coming from the usual suspects at the top of the traditional food chain. Our digital media space is biased towards a shared cost structure, but our currency system is not. To quote Rushkoff here, we're attempting to operate a 21st century digital economy on a 13th century printing press-based operating system. The people creating digital media, they spent time and energy on the things that we read, watch, and listen to. When we insist on consuming it for free, we are pushing them towards something much closer to the broadcast television model where ads fund everything. Thoughts here are that the value extraction cycle has only gotten more damaging to the creative, especially with the advent of monthly subscription services, which funnel less to all the creators who in many cases have no choice about being on the platform in the first place. I was also very curious about Rushkoff's take on crypto, which came of age after this book was written. Again, I have a link in the further reading section below where I'm getting his answer on this with one of his latest works, Survival of the Richest. Turning this into action though, I want to continue my mission to educate people on the damage massive corporations do with media content creators, print and audiobooks, music, podcasts, etc. We have to support our creators. I also want to keep an eye on how I offer up my content. I need to find a balance from what's free to enable more connections with people and what content is worthy of compensation. The last command, purpose, program or be programmed. So digital technology is programmed. This makes it biased towards those with the capacity to write the code. In a digital age, we have to learn how to make the software, or we risk becoming the software. Learning the code behind what we use isn't that hard, and it's never too late to learn. At the very least, people need to understand that there is code behind their interfaces. Otherwise, we're at the mercy of those who do the programming, the people paying them, or even the technology itself. In our society, we've come to see actual coding as a working class skill. 
Often it's outsourced to some poor nation while our kids play or even design video games. We look at developing the plots and characters for a game as the interesting part and the programming as the rote task better offloaded to people somewhere else. But programming the code itself is a place from which the most significant innovations emerge. So we need to understand what programming is, how programmers make decisions, and how those decisions influence the ways the software and its users function. As the mystery of computers became the science of programming, many other mysteries seemed to vanish as well. So for the person who understands code, the whole world reveals itself as a series of decisions made by planners and designers for how the rest of us should live. And we've kind of surrounded our technological age to the small elite who have seized the capability that it offers. Back in the day, Renaissance kings maintained their monopoly over the printing presses by force. And today's elite depends on little more than our own disinterest. We're too busy wading through overflowing inboxes or social media feeds to consider how they got that way in the first place. Is there a better or less frantic way to stay informed and in touch? To quote Rushkoff, we're intimidated by the whole notion of programming, seeing it as a chore for mathematically inclined menials than a language through which we can recreate the world on our own terms. And until geopolitics forces us to program or perish, we'll likely content ourselves with the phone apps and social networks on offer. We'll be driven towards the activities that will help distract us from the coming challenges. There's one more quote from Rushkoff here, which really caps off the main theme of the book. We are looking at nothing less than the conscious, collective intervention of human beings in their own evolution. It's the opportunity of a civilization's lifetime. Shouldn't more of us want to participate actively in this project? So thoughts here, you know, these historical trend lines are very important. They help me to understand how what we're currently experiencing does have direct ties to historical trends that go back much further than the dawn of the internet. And there's a trap here for me, you know, given my last formal programming training was nearly 20 years ago. So I have to continue to remain vigilant and not get too enamored with that knowledge that I had by keeping up with advances and trends in coding and programming, which I do to a point, but not as much as I have been. So turning this into action, I want to ensure that my kids have at minimum a working knowledge of coding principles. And I do want to take advantage of opportunities to learn and educate others on system design issues, good or bad, that go into many of the tools that we utilize on a day-to-day -day basis. And as always, I want to continue to seek ways of eliminating the frantic from my life. So for further reading, if this book, notes, or any of these topics interest you, I would point to the following related work. I've mentioned this book a couple times. Uh, it's a more current analysis from Douglas Rushkoff, including his takes on crypto. I'm currently listening to the audiobook of this title, which is read by Rushkoff himself. It is fantastic. I always love when authors read their own books. The title is Survival of the Richest, The Tech Elite's Ultimate Exit Strategy. So definitely go check that out. The audiobook is just over six hours. Again, very accessible. I recommend the audiobook here as well. I also recommend for further reading Cal Newport's Digital Minimalism. It's another critical book that touches on similar themes with some great methods you can use to live a more focused life. For some excellent arguments on the dangers of social media, I would check out Jaron Lanier's work, uh, J-A-R-O-N-L-A-N-I-E-R. And there's some links here again in the show notes. Um, his book, uh, 10 Arguments for Deleting Your Social Media Accounts Right Now, but he also has, a, he did an excellent interview uh, with the Jordan Harbinger Show many years ago. The link I have in the show notes will also link to some TED Talks and other things that he's done. I also really liked a book by Matt Haig, H-A-I-G, Notes on a Nervous Planet. 
It's a wonderful memoir of living within the current technological age and how we can reduce our anxiety in dealing with it. So that's the book notes for the show. Uh, I'd love some feedback on this. People want to see more of these. I've got a long list of book notes that I can get to. I want to find a way to better distill what I've been reading. So this exercise is good for me on a personal level to help crystallize my takeaways from a book. You know, this book from Douglas Rushkoff, I've been grappling with over two months. I keep picking it up. I keep going through my notes, refining them. This is one of my first efforts at really getting more from that effort, really infusing that knowledge into my life and making it better. So again, I hope this inspires you to pick this gem of a book up. And uh, until next time, thanks for listening. If you feel that Chris dealt with it, I'd appreciate your support of the show by sharing it with someone who might benefit. Ratings on your favorite podcast player are also helpful in growing the audience. Visit chriscroyder.com for free downloadable PDFs with notes and resources for today's episode, sign up for the CDWI mailing list, or to send in your problems or requests for future shows. That's C-H-R-I-S-K-R-E-U-T-E-R.com, or use the link in the show notes. Thanks for listening to Chris Will Deal With It.